This is Millennially Speaking, a podcast about politics, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm David Latimer. This week, we're talking about the second Democratic debate. What are the highlights? Who are the winners and losers? And why was this debate so crucial to the candidates' futures? But first, I wanted to address something that some of our listeners have actually been asking me about, and that's the very obvious absence of my co-host, Sherelle Boyer. And I just wanted to let everybody know that she is not part of the show anymore, and that's because she decided to move to Georgia to be with her family. Um, We're here in New Jersey, and she has moved down to Georgia, so it definitely makes it a little bit harder to do a podcast remotely. It's possible, but we decided that this was the best course of action. So you may have noticed in the last maybe five or six episodes, the show has had a slightly different format and we are going to be experimenting a little bit with the format. Um, we're sort of taking on this more of a, a talk show vibe or a, um, a talk radio vibe. And uh, at the same time, we are also putting our YouTube series, Millennially Speaking 2, on hiatus. Uh, now, that doesn't mean it won't come back in the future, but that is sort of where we're at right now. But I just wanted to let you all know that because that seems to be something that a lot of people are sort of curious about. But anyway, moving right along, what we're talking about today obviously were the second uh, Democratic debate. And first, let's talk about night one. So night one was, uh, it was a little different than last time. So the rules that CNN put out uh, that were different were they actually did have opening statements, unlike NBC's debate. And they had very strict time rules. So just like NBC, they had these minute long, you're able to speak, and then uh, a candidate can have a rebuttal at, at 30 seconds if they want to say something or if their name has been invoked, they can have 30 seconds. But one of the things that they pointed out that the moderators like immediately pointed out was respect the time. And if you go over time, we may take away some of your time later. So that was sort of this threat of you cannot go past your time, otherwise it may affect you later on in the night, which I don't really know if they had a, a really clear way of enforcing that, but the threat was made and it definitely made the candidates all sort of stop a little bit more. Anyway, night one, um, the the two main top tier candidates that were there were Warren, Sanders, and Buttigieg. And then there were also some other ones, including Steve Bullock. He is the one new candidate that was a part of these debates Um, He takes the place of Eric Swalwell, who, since the last debate, actually dropped out. So he is now the new, he's really the only new face uh, on stage. And to be honest, he did much better than Eric Swalwell. I'm not saying at all that Steve Bullock has a chance at being president, but I think he has a much better shot at at least getting his message out there and a slightly clearer at least he's better at speaking, so I think that makes it a little bit of a clearer case as to why he would even be running. Some of the the main highlights that I think happened from the first night, sort of going in order. First of all, it was very clear from the very beginning that John Delaney was going to have a moment uh, in this debate, because last time, if you recall, I said he basically had really nothing. He he wasn't really gone to, he, he didn't really get an opportunity to really, I don't think at least, to state his case, but he really was definitely called on a lot more. And I think from the very beginning he was called on. So that was, um, I think that was an interesting play this time around. Warren 
became really the first person to really lean into the taking on Trump angle, which I don't know what that strategy is necessarily now, because yes, the Democrats, the in the end, their goal is to defeat Donald Trump, but they also need to stake out their policies and sort of their, why are they the best candidate? Because if you just focus on Trump and not your policies, you end up, great, if you end up beating Trump, that's your your sort of end game, but then what do you have to deliver after that, you know? So I think that's really important that the candidates really understand that. One of the things that I thought was really great and, and something that needed to be pointed out, not that Bernie Sanders is necessarily wrong about his health care plan, but there's a point that people need to bring up, and that is that Medicare, the current Medicare system, a lot of people who are on that system have supplemental insurance because Medicare doesn't cover everything. And I mean, if you watch um, channels like Fox News or game show network channels like during the daytime that are sort of targeted towards older people who are at home during the day, you'll see a lot of their commercials are supplemental Medicare commercials because that's a thing that people have. And John Delaney actually pointed this out. He talked about supplemental insurance and I think that's a big point that many people don't understand about the policy and it's good that he's talking about that and and Sanders at one point he did say that the new Medicare system that he would have would cover some other things that the current one doesn't like dental and eyeglasses but that's you know that's that's for up for debate as to is that still going to be enough one of the things that Medicare for all is trying to solve is the idea that your employer health care is great in theory, but what it can do and what it does to a lot of people is it sort of holds them back from changing jobs because they, you know, if they're stuck in a job that maybe doesn't pay great or they want to start their own business or they just hate the job, they feel like they can't leave because it's their, their healthcare is attached to that. So they don't want to take that leap of faith because they're afraid, especially if they have families, of losing their health care. And the idea is that Medicare for All may solve that because it will no longer be tied to your employment. Uh, one of the big things that I noticed on both nights and that I'll get into when I talk about night two is that really it was the sort of left of center candidates, more of the progressives, were definitely talking about stop using quote-unquote Republican talking points about things that can't be done. That was just something I noticed that was being pointed out a lot. And, you know, one of the things that I don't like, and Warren did this, and it it seemed a little more genuine than it normally does to me, but I still don't like it, is when presidential candidates and politicians use, oh, I was talking to this voter, and they, they bring up a name, and they start telling the story about this person that they met. I, I don't know. To me, those things, to me, just feel disingenuous. They don't feel like real stories. I don't know for a fact if they are real or not. But they just feel phony to me. And Elizabeth Warren did do that on talking about healthcare, And I just don't like that. Just That's just me. And she actually lashed out because at one point they were sort of cutting away from her and the audience had sort of laughed because she was trying to keep talking. And she actually like cut off the audience and she said, this isn't funny. Like, I don't know. She, you could definitely tell she was very serious and she was very into uh, what she was discussing and she was very passionate about it. But I just don't like when politicians tell you know, stories about individuals. I just don't like that. Something else that Mayor Pete Buttigieg pointed out, uh, keeping in, in line with the Republican talking points thing, he said that we should just stand up for policies that we 
like no matter what the Republicans say, because if we go really progressive, they're going to call us crazy socialists. If we go more conservative, they're going to call us a bunch of crazy socialists. And that's true. I think there are some diehard Republican voters who obviously are not even considering voting Democrat. So there are there is a particular base of people who you're never really going to connect with. So why are you trying to find, you know, quote unquote, common ground with them when you could just be standing up for the policies that you want in the end, no matter what? There was another big moment with Tim Ryan, who, I mean, he he really doesn't have a whole lot going on, but he ended up uh, discussing healthcare, and and healthcare was a really substantive argument and a really substantive discussion that I really enjoyed. But Tim Ryan was discussing uh, healthcare, uh, the the Medicare for All plan with, or or about Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, and sort of insisting that you don't really know. Um, that the things that you're saying are going to be covered are actually going to stay covered. And he said, no, I do know because I, quote unquote, wrote the damn bill. Buttigieg called out some of the previous or the previous debate. He called out the hand raised questions because they thought they were very unclear in terms of what those were. Because you can't really have a nuanced discussion about a hand raise. Specifically, if you want to bring up a hand raise thing that sort of went awry was the Kamala Harris one from last time where she said, you know, would you get rid of your private insurance? And she raised her hand, but she thought that meant, would you get rid of your own personal, not, you know, Medicare for all and, and eliminate private insurance. So so one of the other things that from last time, the last debate, there was a hand raised question about should undocumented immigrants be given health care? And everybody raised their hands. And there was a question brought up to Bernie Sanders about that. And he, you know, was asked sort of a couple of times and he punted every time about, Will undocumented immigrants get free health care? And I think that's a really important thing that he needs to answer because I think there's a lot of people who are concerned about, you know, does that encourage more illegal immigration? Does that encourage more illegal border crossings if there's a promise of free health care on the other side? So he needs to clarify his stance on that. And I think he really does in the in the next debate. I think he's going to be forced to Amy Klobuchar did discuss she has a an infrastructure plan, which that's sort of one of those things that in poll after poll, you actually do get bipartisan support. Um, she says she has a $1 trillion infrastructure plan, which she says that that sort of trickles down to everything is when you have poor infrastructure, it can lead to, you know, car damages, which can, you know, charge people money to have to fix their cars, which means they have less money in their pocket, which it's sort of a cycle of the government needs to fix the things that they are responsible for, which will then help the little guy. Marianne Williamson also had, she definitely had some zingers, very similar to the first debate. Uh, she had a very good response when talking about the Flint crisis and saying that she, um, there would be a, never be another Flint. And she, she did, she does have a plan for infrastructure in, in a way that would fix places like Flint with their lead in the water. And she also did have another response regarding reparations, and she talked about how she, quote-unquote, did the math on the 40 acres and a mule thing, which was the uh, the promise of giving every um, freed slave a plot of land, and that way they could sort of build their own wealth. And that actually got a big response, and that got a lot of, uh, a lot of attention, a lot of cheers from the audience. And Sanders actually doesn't support reparations. That's an interesting thing. I think we had discussed that a couple uh, episodes ago, that he doesn't support reparations. But 
he does support an end to school segregation, sort of the, in some ways we're sort of stepping back uh, on, on integrating schools in a way. Tim Ryan actually complimented Trump at one point on uh, China, on being tough on China, and specifically in pointing out the how, how China manipulates their currency. And I think that was good in that, obviously not everything Trump does is bad. There's There are some things that any sane person would want done, and China being a currency manipulator in China you know, stealing intellectual property and all of those things, any sane person, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, should want that. Regarding war and nuclear weapons, Elizabeth Warren actually said she would never use nuclear weapons without provocation first, or in this case, like, actually someone else using a nuclear weapon against us first, which I believe it was Tim Ryan, he was getting into a a fight with her about that, that you can't really... If a nuclear weapon hit the United States... That would be incredibly devastating, and that's not something that we can just sort of turn around and, you know, get back from. You need to be preemptive with those kinds of things. So that there was a, 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 not substantive, I would say, but a good discussion about, like, no, nuclear weapons, sometimes you do need to be proactive with them. And lastly, Beto O'Rourke, he did at one point say that he would want to end all the U.S. conflicts and U.S. wars, of course, specifically the Afghanistan war mainly, but also uh, a lot of the other places where U.S. troops are currently stationed, really all around the world, and that not really sure if that was a good strategy or not, because we do need to be stationed all around the world. It's just, do we need to be engaged in the sorts of things that we're doing in Afghanistan in other places? So, so active military, active fighting, do we need to do that? So, another discussion about that. As for the night one winners and losers... I would say your top three are still doing pretty well, so I would say they were all sort of winners in that I don't think any of them really got too horribly attacked or didn't have too many really big missteps. I think a lot of what Warren and Sanders were doing was, uh, I use the phrase, clapping back at some of the things that the moderates are sort of attacking them on. And that was really the theme of both nights was the moderate versus the progressive and sort of the moderates really everybody was sort of ganging up on the progressives this time instead of just sort of one and that's because you had Warren and Sanders on the same stage so that was kind of helpful for the moderates on stage so definitely I think the big three including Buttigieg he didn't really have as big of a moment as I think Warren and Sanders did but he I think went out unscathed and I don't really know his strategy is very unclear uh, but he definitely does have, um, moving forward, I think he definitely needs to build a bigger coalition, and I don't really know if the debates are helping him in that. And a close person that I wouldn't necessarily call a winner, but definitely still up there in terms of the interesting commentary, was John Delaney. So he sort of moved up from the last debate being in the bottom to now sort of having a really big moment. I don't know if that's going to move polls a lot, I really doubt it, but he definitely had a much bigger impact this time around. As for losers, it was very obvious that once again, Tim Ryan was the big loser. He seemed very unsure of why he was there. I still don't understand what his strategy is or what his policies are or even why he's running. And I don't really know if he does either. So he's definitely one that I would say was the biggest loser of the night. Um, 
And then also Amy Klobuchar. I don't really think she had enough of a moment to stand out. And she's that mid-tier. Really, Klobuchar and Beto O'Rourke, they're the mid-tier that they're not the one percenters in the polls, but they're not the the top tier, like, you know, the the second to top tier, like uh, Sanders and Buttigieg and Warren. So they really needed something like this to boost them at least a few percentage points. And Klobuchar, at this point, is not actually secure for the second debate, I believe. So she definitely needed uh, a little more of a boost from this, and I'm not really sure that this gave it to her. As for night two of the debates, uh, I think this was definitely, as last time, this was the more interesting debate, and I don't really know what that is. Is it the candidates that are there? Is it because those candidates were able to watch the first debate, so they're more prepared as to the format and the talking points about what the moderators might ask, but nonetheless, it definitely was more interesting. Right out of the gate, in the opening statements, Bill de Blasio actually attacked both Harris and Biden, which I thought was interesting. None of the other ones really, most of the other candidates really didn't address anybody else in their opening statements. They really focused on what their policies were or or who they are or why they're running. So I thought that was an interesting jab. Uh, He definitely was trying to get more involved in the fight this time, for sure. During the opening statements, this was definitely a lot more of an interesting night because there were actually two cases where you had protesters in the audience interrupting. And the first was meant for Bill de Blasio, but it was occurring during Cory Booker's opening statement. And there was some chants that broke out, and the audience, we at home at least, couldn't really figure out what was being said, but we found out later on Twitter and through people that were in the audience understanding what it was, it was actually Fire Pantaleo, which, for those who don't know, Pantaleo, he is a NYPD officer. He's actually the one responsible for the death of Eric Gardner. He was a a black man who was killed five years ago in New York City, he's the one that was being put in a chokehold and he couldn't breathe, and he said he couldn't breathe like about a dozen times. And just recently, there, there were a federal the federal case about him as to whether there would be charges brought against anyone involved. And uh, Bill Barr, the attorney general, actually just decided that no, there would not be any charges brought because they were about to reach the end of the statute of limitations, and he had decided no. So that's what that was about because this sort of brought up the case again. And as to why that officer is still on the NYPD and Bill de Blasio being the mayor of New York City, you should have to answer for that. One of the things that Biden really talked about, because Harris is in this, Kamala Harris is into this Medicare for all kind of plan. She definitely is not into eliminating private insurance. But one of the things that Biden was talking about is that her plan would cost, I believe he said like $31 trillion or something, something very high, um, but that Biden's would only cost somewhere just below $1 trillion, like maybe the $800 billion mark. And he was talking about that. And then he was also calling her out and saying that she uh, does a lot of flip-flopping regarding her health care plan. Harris then sort of goes back and says to Biden that his health care plan is a lot of the status quo, which of course it is, because one of the things that Biden is really into is preserving the legacy of Obama, and that would be Obamacare. So what he plans to do is stick with what Obamacare was doing take and and return anything that Trump has taken away, like the individual mandate, and then expand it and and really basically finish what Obama started. So, of course, it's the status quo. It's going right back to where we were prior to 2016. One of the things that was interesting is that Biden threw out a number, $1,000 copay, uh, which would be part of his plan, and or a $1,000 deductible. And I thought that was interesting because if you listen to Kamala Harris's 
argument, she has always said that a $400 expense to most families in the country or a lot of families in the country would sort of upend their entire family and upend their life and, and their finances, which I kind of agree. I, I'm not sure exactly on the numbers, but if that is the case, if $400 would upend a family, $1,000 as your copay is still too high. So Biden's plan is too high according to the Harris metrics. Booker pointed out a couple of times that he got a little meta, I think, about the debates and pointed out that the debate is pitting moderates against progressives and feeding into Trump and the Republicans. And I mean, true, but it's a debate. Like the point of a debate is for the candidates to discuss what's different about each other and not to goad them and not to, you know, force moments, but if you have a very different policy, especially a policy that's either unpopular or very expensive on your, based on your own metrics, you should have to defend that, especially when others have a much lower cost policy, because I think Americans are definitely not liking the idea of raising taxes. So defend that. And, and I think that's a fair thing to do. Oh my gosh, if I heard Andrew Yang talk about his $1,000 monthly dividend one more time. I get it. That's your landmark policy. You believe that that is the thing that's going to change Americans' lives. And in a lot of ways, it probably would. But you got to have something else. To, it was like every single thing that he talked about, he would like end the statement with falling back on that. And I know on his website, he does have tons more policies, but it's very clear that this is sort of the thing that he's hoping will push him over the edge is this $1,000 a month dividend. But oh my gosh, if he said it one more time, I was going to freak out. So the second thing, I was going to say the second time that the audience interrupted the candidates was when Biden was talking about immigration. This is a big topic that Biden really does need to address, and that is during the Obama administration, there were even more deportations than during the Trump presidency. There were about three million deportations, and that was actually what was being chanted in the audience was three million deportations, and and they were eventually taken out of the theater. But yeah, I think if the Democrats and the the liberals are really going to be harping on the Trump presidency and the Trump policy of immigration, then Joe Biden does need to come to terms with that. And instead of just saying, well, you know, I deferred to Obama and that was Obama's decision and, and being confused as to why people are even questioning it. Because at one point he was like, I don't even know why anyone's even bringing this up. Why are we bringing up these things? Well, because you have decades and decades of time in public service and the more time you have, the more that we're going to look at it, especially if it's a policy that was less than a decade ago and now all of a sudden you flipped. Well, why? Why is it that you are the way that you are and you need to, I don't know what he needs to do, but he needs to just come to terms with that because it just, it's a flip-flop and it's not right. And he definitely has a much more conservative immigration policy anyway, because he actually wants to, you know, quote unquote, keep the border closed and obviously not do the, the family separation, but he wants to do a lot more of the while some of the, the Democrats are a lot more of, you know, make it a civil matter instead of a, a criminal matter when you're crossing the border, he is a lot more in the camp of just return it to the way that things have been, which is we just send you back. We know it's a crime, but we're not going to really enforce it. We just send you back. Um, and that's he, he says you need to come to ports of entry and, and 
go through the legal process and all of that. So he's definitely following a lot more of a conservative view than sort of the liberals have taken. There was a line that Biden had said actually regarding immigration, and he said, we quote unquote cherry pick the best people. And not a lot of people have really been, actually no one I've seen online has really been pointing that out that he said that. But I thought that was kind of a weird thing to say. I thought that was, again, taking more of the Republican stance of you need to find the best people to bring in, whereas most liberals and most Democrats are more into, you know, send us your huddled masses, your your poor, your tired, all the things that are on the Statue of Liberty. So that was kind of weird that no one else is really bringing that point up. Tulsi Gabbard, actually, uh, when they were talking about free college, um, specifically for undocumented immigrants, she said that she's not in favor of that. And I think that's a bold stance. That's a very bold decision. She's definitely falling more into the conservative side of the Democratic Party, a lot more or a lot less left-leaning than some of the others. One of the other big lines was that Booker was saying to Biden, you can't invoke Obama when it's convenient to you and ignore him when it's not. So specifically about the deportation things and um, records on criminal justice. And and especially when we're you know talking about because Biden's been in public service for so long and you have the tough on crime bills that Biden has for so many years been so in favor of and really wanting to put his name on, he can't then punt and say, well, Obama still picked me and Obama wanted me. And but that may all be true, but you do need to reckon with the fact that you decided to endorse these tough on crime bills and all they've done is disproportionately affect people of color and put people in jail for drug sentences that really do not fit the crime. They just do not. And Kamala Harris, her her record as the attorney general of California was actually put on trial a little bit last night. And I think that was, that's a good thing. I think it was a good thing that as a front runner, Kamala Harris is definitely getting some attention. And I think she, she should have seen that coming because last time Biden was really the only one at the top that really was sort of the lightning rod, so he had to sort of take all of the heat. But now Kamala Harris has a target on her back. So it's good to look at people's records and look at their, not just their words, but also their actions. And there were some cases where, you know, maybe she didn't always do the quote-unquote right thing or, or the politically correct thing, but she was doing her job and she's having a hard time sort of reconciling that now. Kirsten Gillibrand attacked Bill de Blasio again about the Pantaleo thing, about the the officer who killed Eric Gardner. Uh, she said she would have fired him. She would have an investigation. If she wasn't satisfied with the results of an investigation, she would have another investigation. She was definitely having some more moments last night than she had in the first debate. Um, she also brought up her own white privilege, which not that I mind when white people bring up their white privilege. I just don't like when they bring it up so forcefully and it feels like it's forced into conversation not that hers necessarily was it just i don't know it didn't necessarily feel super genuine to me one of the things that biden was talking about when it came to climate change was uh, his proposal would be to add 500,000 charging stations and then he somehow connected it that by doing that by 2030 we would end up with all electric cars and i don't think that's true i don't really understand how that connection could be made i don't really know what he was Okay, so you add all these charging stations, which I do agree, you do need more of them if you ever want to see electric cars succeed, especially in suburbs, because that's where cars are, and in my area, I I know I only have a few in a couple of high-end shopping centers in my area, but I don't see them on every corner like I see a Wawa or I see a, a Luke Oil or a Sunoco. Like, I see those gas stations, but I don't see charging stations. 
but I don't really know how he was trying to make that thread that it would just thereby we would just all have electric cars. Eh, no, not necessarily. Uh, Gillibrand also was trying to attack Joe Biden on his childcare policy because he said, I don't even remember when when the comments were made, but he said that women working or mothers working would lead to the, I think she said the deterioration of the family. And she kept pressing him on that and pressing as to why he said that or what he meant by that or uh, if he really believed that. And eventually he ended up saying he didn't believe that or he doesn't ever believe that, which again felt to me like a punt and a, a not a real answer. But well, there you go for Joe Biden. Nobody was really answering the question about the job guarantee in the Green New Deal. And whether you agree with the ideas of the Green New Deal or not, I think it's important that candidates who support it, who have sponsored the bill, who are in favor of the Green New Deal, actually clarify what the jobs guarantee is about. So for those who don't understand, the jobs guarantee in the Green New Deal is not just to be, you know, social justice warriors so that way everybody has a job. No. The point is understanding that if we are supposedly going to get away from fossil fuels and get away from coal and all of those things, that those that wrote the Green New Deal understand that that's going to leave a huge gap in employment for those who are in those industries. So to help those people, you guarantee a job for everyone who wants one because we know that that's going to hurt those industries and that's supposed to get more of those people on board that, you know, you'll get high paying jobs even if we basically, you know, make your industry illegal. And I think that's not right that candidates really just didn't answer that question, really, if they would defend it or say, is it realistic? And that was one of the other things that the debate was really doing a lot is a lot of the because there are so many progressives and so many more big idea policies that are out there. A lot of the questions were framed with the is this realistic idea? And I didn't really like that because, you know, you get big ideas and you work your way back from big ideas. I'd rather have someone come up with a big idea and then we sort of, you know, work at it rather than come up with small, tiny things that aren't really going to make a difference to anybody. So I don't, I don't like the framing of that. And that was really a big focus on both nights was the, is this realistic idea? So winners and losers for the night. In this case, I actually feel the opposite as I felt about the first night. So I think your winners... I think Cory Booker had a better night than he had last time. I think he made some good policy points. He made some good... He, he definitely made a lot more uh, progress in terms of taking down the, the top-tier candidates and really discussing their record. So I think that was important for him. I think Gillibrand had a much better night than she had last time because she had a couple, again, she had a couple of good zingers against Joe Biden and his policy. So I thought that was important. I think there were a lot more losers from last night than there were winners. So obviously Biden and Harris were, I think, more of the losers because even though Harris was able to still attack Joe Biden, I think she definitely got a lot more pushback from the other candidates so she definitely had to defend a little bit more of her record and that made it difficult for her to really be seen as the winner of the night so that was that was difficult on her I think several of the others sort of disappointed a lot like Jay Inslee his big reason for running is climate change and that's sort of his big policy thing that he wants to run on really the only reason he's running so it was hard, at least for me, to sort of listen to anything else that he wanted to talk about because you know that every issue that he's talking about is he's framing it from a climate change perspective. Same thing with Andrew Yang and his 
thousand dollar a month dividend. Like every issue is framed around this one idea. And there's a lot of those this time around who are really focused on one issue. I think you had Tulsi Gabbard wasn't bad, but she didn't really have a moment. I don't think she really had anything that was that stand out. I think Bill de Blasio did much worse than he did the first time. Not that obviously not that he did that well the first time, but I think the the sort of this cloud of the Eric Garner case sort of over his head definitely was not helpful to making the case as to why he should be in charge of, you know, the the police in the country and police reform or anything like that. I think that was definitely a hard case to make. And lastly, the important thing to discuss now is why was this debate more important than the first one? And why does this one matter so much to the candidate's future moving forward? So... The reason this one matters so much is because the next debate, which, again, will be held in about a month from now, has a much higher bar for entry. So the last two debates had the following criteria. It was the same for both. You had to meet a donor criteria, which was that you had to have a minimum of 65,000 unique donors and at least 200 unique donors per state in at least 20 states. So it was a, a little bit complicated in terms of the figuring that part out, just making sure that you weren't like, oh, I'm only popular in this state, so that's the only way I'm getting in. Well, they're making sure that you're you're getting enough unique donations from different people. And then also you need to have at least 1% polling in three polls. So, and, and you only had to meet one of those criteria. You didn't have to meet both, you just had to meet one. So, and then, then because of the number of people, there were also some tiebreaker things, but that didn't really matter so much because they were actually, the ones that didn't meet those requirements just didn't make it to the debate. So now you've got the third debate, which has a much higher bar to enter. So for fundraising donations, you need to have a minimum of 130,000 unique donors and at least 400 unique donors in at least 20 states. So definitely a much higher bar there. And then you also have to have at least 2% support in four different polls, and you must meet both of those criteria. So it is sort of double whammy in terms of you have to meet both of those things, and you don't have a whole lot of time to do that. You really needed the debates to get that push. So far, only seven people meet those criteria. That's Biden, Buttigieg, uh, Harris, Sanders, Warren, Booker, and Beto O'Rourke. Klobuchar currently has the polling. She is at at least 2% in five polls, and she has 120,000 donors. And Julian Castro and Andrew Yang both meet the donor criteria, but they currently are only polling at around 2% in three polls. So they're both kind of close. There's some others that are also on their way, like Tulsi Gabbard has 120,000 donors, so she's getting there with that, but she only has one poll where she's above 2%. So... Uh, same thing with John Hickenlooper. He's got one poll at around 2%, but his individual donors are very, very low. So definitely going to be interesting to see who makes it to the next one. But that's why that debate mattered so much, because it's really your last opportunity to speak directly to the American people to hope that you'll get to the next stage, which would help you again speak directly to the American people in that big setting and really make your case against the front runners. So and and if you don't make that stage, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure from outside groups that are saying you should step down and you should 
you know, suspend your campaign because we really need to start focusing in and honing in on who our support is going to go towards. So that's why that mattered. And that's really, I think, the only reason why this debate mattered so much, because I don't think polling is going to change that much. I don't think that Biden or Harris are going to be hurt that bad by this. But we'll see. You never know. And that's all for this special edition of Millennially Speaking. I'm David Latimer. Be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share us with your friends. We're also on Instagram at millennially underscore speaking. We'll be back next week.